welcome to this week's episode of Top Lines and Tales, your weekly livestock podcast. As always, we'd like to thank our sponsors, Harbro, for their kind continued support. It's only a few weeks ago since we lost maybe one of the greatest characters in the UK, if not the world livestock um, stage, uh, Roly Fraser. And uh, I hope his family won't mind that I delve back into the archives here, uh, recording that I've had sitting on file now for some time. And... Uh, it's fantastic. Please take a little bit of time and sit and pay respect and listen to uh, one of the greatest minds within the livestock breed. In 2013, while researching for the Aberdeen Angus, I had the pleasure of talking with Rody Fraser in his house in Fife, an exceptional experience it was too. And uh, we start by asking Rody a few formulaic questions and then it really goes into free fall and it's fantastic to hear about those heady days of, of Perth and those days, of course, when Rody was in charge and sold some of the greatest cattle in the land. Let's start by talking about some of these young bulls, or bull calves, I suppose they were, that made Perth Market so famous. The average age in 1963, when um, talk of a rose bull was sold, Lindertus of Alce, the average age was 11 months. There were about 600 bulls, as far as I remember, and the average age was 11 months. They were too small, but as you say, they were over-fat, suckled calves. As you say, the calves were quite a lot younger then, but uh, they had the whole thing had got they got very small, hadn't they? The reason they come to Edwards came in was because all the home breeds had got too small. They let Prince, Shorthorns, Angus, they all got too small. The South Devon people, you know, were hiding their light under a bushel, so to yes. speak. I've often thought that if they had put, if they had pushed their cattle, promoted their cattle about that time, mm-hmm. they would have really they, taken They're some grossy cattle, and they still are, aren't they? Yeah. So, Rodney, let's go on and talk about the, the fantastic, the, the old, the Perth market itself. The old market was built in 1875, I, I found out. So. My grandfather and, and, and MacDonald built it. MacDonald actually died shortly after it was opened. Your grandfather was... was uh, J.M. Fraser. J- your father was Lovett? Yeah. Then there, were, then there was and Harry. Lovett and Harry were the two, the, brothers. The two brothers. That's right. Um, Lovett joined it in 1902, and Harry joined, I think, in 1905, right. slightly before my time. Mm-hmm. So when did you join the firm? That was when I came out of the army, nineteen fifty-one. Yes, yeah, October nineteen fifty-one. You joined as a working auctioneer when you yeah, first joined. I joined as the office boy. The office boy. Okay. I was one of the oldest office boys that ever had. <laughs> when did you, you progress to start selling? Well, I started selling in nineteen fifty-two. At, a, at you know the, the way we taught auctioneers in those days, the Spanish sales at farms. It's what's called the barn door, the small tools. Right. That's where I started, and all auctioneers started in nineteen fifty-two. I sell up near Comrie. Uh-huh. Then after that, I started selling, I think, pigs. Because in those days, there were big numbers of pigs being sold because farmers filled their steadings up with pigs during mm-hmm. the summer. Okay. You can't do that now, but they did. Right. And, and we were selling about 1,000 pigs a week. Really? In Perth? Young, young pigs in mm-hmm. Perth. And mm-hmm. that was the next stage. And then I went on to sheep. Right. And Everyone thinks that all I ever sold were pedigree cattle. I uh-huh. sold sheep twice a week, every week. Really? Plus a few more. Yes, yes. <laughs> and yeah. the only cattle I was allowed to sell were bulls. They didn't, they didn't trust me with store cattle. They didn't think I knew anything about them. They probably didn't. Uh-huh. So I started selling pedigree cattle in 1956. Right, okay. Because my father had a motor accident on the way back from an international in February, just before the bull sales. Oh, okay. And... Um, Harry, for some reason or other, 
although he was he, he was never happy selling pedigree cattle, he liked selling Irish cattle or something slow, uh-huh. and he wouldn't sell the champions. So I remember that first sale I did uh, about three three bulls before the champions. Harry said to me, "You get into the box now." So I sold three bulls and then the and then the champions. It was elegance of Charterhouse. No, I think he was six thousand. Oh, he went to the states. Matthew Sorry. Templeton, he was he, he was ill and he wasn't at the sale. It's oh. funny. My father sold Tom Templeton's herd off in St. Boswell's auction market. Mm-hmm. I sold Matthew Templeton's herd off in St. Boswell's auction market. Right. Uh, there are two times either of us had ever sold in you know, somebody else's market. I'm going to say that wasn't the St. Boswell's wouldn't be Swans. joined I mean, you in. all over the country, but we didn't have any south of Edinburgh. And Swan's sheep ring was the perfect place to show cattle. Was it? Because all the people were sitting lower than the, than the stock. And so the, the, the ring was higher than the people. It was great for selling, yes. showing sheep or showing anything. It was a lovely ring to sell in, actually. Yes, I can remember yes. it well. So that was... 56 was the first year I sold pedigrees. And 58 was Elevator Eastfield. That was the first bull that made over 20,000 guineas. And that probably gave me more satisfaction than anything I've ever sold before, since. Because it was, you know, it was the first time. And I can remember, remember selling it well. Bought by Aberan Farms in, in Virginia. Obviously, a lot of reasons to coming to you, but one of my reasons is you will know a lot of the, the American names, which I would like to be able to catch yeah, up with. Well, a lot of, well, mm. In the boardroom at Sterling, they've got a whole lot of photographs. They have, yeah. You've seen them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And no one knew who they were. No, really? So I went down the other day and put names on them. So who was it, who were the auctioneers with you back then? Your, 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 your father and were there others in the partnership? My father and Harry, Oliver Cumming, Oliver Cumming. who actually, his main job was that he, he managed the Dunfermline branch. Right. And when I first started, Norman Cree. Okay. But he died quite young. He had a cancer of the stomach. Okay. And I think he died about 1954 or thereby. And then... Shortly thereafter, um, must have been you know, sometime uh, Hutchison, Eddie Hutchinson and Jack Young. I can't remember when they did. Jack used to be in Cooper, I think. Right. And then he was brought to Perth. Uh-huh. I'm not quite sure when they started. Yeah. David Leggett started in 1976. I remember employing him. Uh, obviously quite a bit later, but you think Jack would have been in the mid-60s sometime? Would he, would he have been Jack would join the, the very late, probably the early 60s. Yes. And would he be selling bulls with the, alongside you? And yeah, naturally. After my father and because I don't think my father he never, my father never sold again after. Did he not after no. after the, the accident? Harry did, uh-huh. but then they, but he sort of stopped selling, and Jack and Eddie took over, and they sold along with me. There was the three of us. Oh, that's interesting. Yes, Eddie Hudson sold the first high price bull, Evil okay. of Wandle. Mm-hmm. Um, made 28,200 guineas. Right. Uh, and I remember Bob Adam bought him because he wanted to try and improve the faces of his cattle. But it didn't work because the cows were so dominant that they just came through every time. Okay. And he tried, and that's why eventually Bob, mm-hmm. they sold their Agnes because I mean, the, the cows were just so dominant he couldn't find a bull to change the type really? at all. Really? And, and during that time, these bulls would be starting to get smaller, right? or shorter-legged, should I say, though. They certainly they were, they were, they, did they deliberately try and get them shorter-legged, or was yeah, that something they that were, happened? they were bred that way. We, we, all the three home breeds were breeding specifically for the Argentine market. They wanted small, quick, maturing cattle, mm-hmm. whether it be Hereford, Shorthorns, or Angus. So but, I think the breeders deliberately um, 
they'd, there were a lot of good families disappeared because they bred big coarse bulls. Uh-huh. Um, in the Agnes breed, Miss Burgesses, Georginas, and one or two others, they damn near disappeared because they because were, they were bulls that no one wanted. Oh, right. okay. The only people that wanted them, there was a, an American outfit called the Y Valley Plantation. I know the Y Valley, I was going to come on to And uh, Carl Lincoln was mm-hmm. the man's name. Yeah, man, okay. so, and they, they were going around buying bulls privately mm-hmm. for about 150 guineas that we couldn't have sold them that for. Is they, but they were buying bulls from Grant of Georgetown, you know, big, big rough bulls that we couldn't have sold in really? those days. Okay. But they, they just, they knew what they were looking for, and that, that's where they got the foundation that, stuff. That brings me on to the next question that I got, that there must have been at some stage, there must have been two different types of Aberdeen Angus bulls coming through the mart. Because they must have been the smaller ones for the Argentine, and they must have been the, the bigger bull. Or did they not just bring them in? Everything just came in small. They didn't bring them in. So nobody, the commercial men were still, commercial men they appeared to sway away, the commercial men in the UK appeared to sway away from the Angus because they were too small. So I would did. have thought, were they not they sourcing did. the bigger bulls themselves? A lot of the bigger bulls were just cut because they were one of them. Oh, they were unfashionable. Yeah. And as I say, some of the best families in, and the shorthorn breed too, I don't know, I can't speak for Herefords too much. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the, the good families disappeared. Really? Yeah. Um, then the other thing that made them disappear was about the same time the Americans said Angus must be black uh-huh. and anything with a white udder, mm-hmm. forget it. Really? So again, sort of one or two other good milking families were lost. They, they, I've heard a tale that Bob Adam had maybe said or somebody had said that what kept the, the Angus honest was the short-horn bulls that swam, that swam the spay and I think there was a little, little no, bit of short-horn that would have come into some of those white udders, would they be? You, you, I'll get on to that. Oh, I see. Okay. I have very strong feelings about that. Uh-huh. They, there was a bull, actually, there was a lot of funny stuff went on. There was a bull called Ermiter of Haymount. Oh, my was bought to uh, go to Blue, Blue Sky Farms. Tom bought me a picture. Well, when it got to the States, it was remarkable. You had a bit of white underneath oh, it. Oh, I see. Okay. You didn't have it in Perth. I remember Sam Barr was the manager of Blue Sky Farms. I remember meeting him years later and he laughed about it. Uh-huh. He said he knew perfectly well that he'd had pint because he'd seen him earlier when he was a calf. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> now, well, I've been in the, in the cattle showing business myself, so I understand those tricks that go on, but that is a little bit sharp if that's not what they're, not what they're looking for. Well, that's, but I might have actually, I think uh, he was sold again. There was one that was sold at 7,000, and, and I, again, I haven't, I've got yeah, a record from it now, and it was resold for 300,000 or something. Yeah, this guy sold, so they either sold, sold him entirely, or they sold a share of him, I can't mm. remember what now. Um, I, I'm probably jumping about a bit, but when did it start to dawn on, on, the, on a few people that these animals were getting too small? Was there, a, was there a fuss being kicked up by the commercial men here because the bulls were getting too small to go back to the export? I think... This, the commercial men were being totally ignored. They, well, most of the, the, the sort of new Angus readers, if, if just to put historically back in perspective, after the First War, mm-hmm. um, there was a boom period. If you had pretensions to be a landed gent, then you had heard of beef shorthorn. Okay. After the Second War, if you had pretensions to have been a successful businessman during the war, then you had heard of Edward Angus. Okay. Uh, my father spent the 30s selling all the shorthorns off, and I spent the 60s selling most of the Angus yes, off. Okay. They weren't interested in breeding commercial bulls, good crossing bulls. No. They were only interested in breeding stock bulls. Uh-huh. Um, and if they didn't breed stock bulls, they were rubbish. Um, you know, they, when, when Avance was sold, 
about 63,000. He put 100 guineas onto the average on 600 bulls. But, I mean, they were either making a huge price or nothing. Wasn't a lot of other, other high-priced bulls that same sale, was there? If I no. It. There was nothing there else were, over about 10,000, I think. There, were all, there weren't all that many high-priced bulls. There was a sort of spate of them at one stage in the early 60s, or from 58, Elevate was 20,000, 25,000. Then we got, um, you were doing side at 54,000. Mm-hmm. Bob Adams sold, his, Mrs. Adams sold a bull for 35,000. Is it the Jew-Erica? There, were, there was a sort of spate of them mm-hmm. for two or three years. Uh-huh. But um, there were just a very small percentage of the, the total number of bulls entered. Mm-hmm. And the rest of them would be, would be the sold for, for commercial <laughs> money? Commercial money all ass? No, nothing. Yes. I'll tell you a story. Okay. I can't remember what year it was, but there was the butchers used to buy them mm-hmm. at about ninety-five guineas was the butcher's price. Okay. And I got fed up with the butchers at one sale. And at the end of the sale, Sam McGowan, our right side manager, came up to me and said, "Mr. Fraser, what are you going to do with all these bulls you bought?" And I mm-hmm. said, "What bulls?" And I'd forgotten we were selling them guineas. You see. Okay. And I was. The butchers were 95 pounds was about the price, but 95 guineas was too much. Too much for them, okay. And I ended up with 24 bulls, and Sam McGowan said, what are you going to do with them? I said, I don't know. I went home, and the telephone rang, and a chap called Ray Godwin, he said, this is Ray Godwin. Oh, I know Ray Godwin, he was my neighbour. He was yeah. my next-door neighbour, and for, for years, for Ray's died now, but he was our next-door neighbour in Kidderminster, neighbouring oh, or, or two, three miles away. I've never read all my life. said, when's your bull sale? Uh-huh. And I said, what's just been, Mr. Godwin? Uh-huh. I said, damn, I could have done with a bull or two. And I said, how many would you, were you looking for? He said, oh, damn, I could have done with about 18. So I said, well, I'll see what I can do. And I went shooting down to both. Said, Sam, get rid of the worst six and send the rest on, on what's his name, float down. To well, well, well. And from because Ray used to hire bulls out all around yeah. our district. That's, that was well, his from job. from then on, I used to buy all Ray's bulls for Oh, right, okay. Yeah. And I gradually raised his... I got him eventually up to paying paying a thousand a thousand a piece yes, for them. Yes, yes, he never paid and then more he than that. He used to come to me at Salisbury uh-huh. where I tried to run a sale there. Right. And Ray came and knocked hell out of the local dealers. Really? Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, that's interesting. You, you mentioned Evolsis, and I was going to come on to him, but I might just catch him now while we while he's a topic of conversation. Tell me about him because he seemed to be a bit of an outcross. I mean, out of a witch cross off a witch cross bull that was that was. I don't know not why Jack, else. I don't know why Jack Dick bought him. He might have been a first prize, I think, but he certainly wasn't a champion. He certainly, he wasn't, certainly champion. wasn't in the champions. No, no, no. Then, of course, it was interesting. He was infertile. Yes, I knew that. But he had, he had had a semen test taken before the sale, and his semen was all right. Even at that age, could they do that? I suppose yeah. They could, yeah, yeah. Then he went to Ireland and for quarantine, and the story has it that he got a, a chill, a sort of pneumonia type chill, uh-huh. and he was dosed with one of the sulphur drugs, uh-huh. which are now never used. Yes. And the side effect of this, of, the, of that particular drug was it blocked the ep- epididymine, which right. was from the testicles mm-hmm. to the... Uh-huh. And apparently a lot of Suffolk sheep breeders had, had had the same problem with the same drug. So a lot of people put two and two together and said, well, that's what the cause was. Mm-hmm. Net result was that he didn't breed. And one testicle is in a glass jar somewhere in America, and the other one is in a glass jar somewhere in Britain. <laughs> I saw him in Black Watch. He was there. He was okay. Because they, they, they had several Perth champions, escort of Manor Hill, and mm-hmm. well, I sold at the very the opening, opening sale of Black Watch Farms in in Wappingers Falls. I was invited across as a guest auctioneer. Oh wow! Okay. And they nearly killed me because I got I got pneumonia. Did you? 
And one of the they didn't give you the sulphur, did they? One of the, one of the readers was a doctor. Oh, right. He gave us some pills, and I, I was when I cut home. I was in bed for six weeks. Oh, good lord! Really? <laughs> anyway, well, that's beside the point. What year was that? Sixty-four. But they didn't dead his bull. They must have killed him. I assume did they? If they didn't breed, he they kept him. They hadn't finally given up hope um, when they at the opening sale because he was on display. It was a big plain bull. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so I suppose my my. Question here was was when did you realise that the, the 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 bulls were getting too small? Was this some, right. at some stage did somebody say, "Well, hang on"? I suppose yeah. I suppose when the when the continental started coming, uh-huh. they suddenly said, "Why are people buying? Why are the commercial people buying these these bulls?" And, and the answer was because they were bigger and producing bigger calves, and that's what they wanted. Uh-huh. And then, of course, the the Angus the Angus went all peculiar. They, yeah. they got very big sideways on and you could hardly see them when they were walking away from you. <laughs> but I have, a, I have a thing about that. When I first, the first time I ever went to Denver, I went, went out for supper with this chap and we, we were just discussing Agnes and that was just when a big bull called Colossal had appeared on the scene. Colossal? Canadian Colossal. Okay. And uh, there was doubt about his breeding. Uh-huh. And no, what was his name? It doesn't matter. We both reckon that the Agnes Society in, America, in this country and the Agnes Association in America made a great mistake in not having an experimental register. Mm-hmm. Because it would have made honest men of a lot of people. Yes. There were all sorts of funny things yes. used. Yes. I, mean, I bought, a, I bought a, an Agnes bull from Bob Crockett mm-hmm. to use on my short horns, and they came out with horns straight out of their yes. heads. Yes. Yes. And I said to Bob, look what's happening. Oh, he said it's a bit. Mm. I can't remember the bully imported from Canada, but he said that was father was a Holstein. Yeah, yeah. And they yeah. were using Kianino and... Kianino, Holstein, Gelbys as well, I think. Shorthorns, mm. they opened an experimental register. Yes. You could see exactly what had been, how mm. something had been arrived at. Mm-hmm. And the Herefords did too, up to a point. Yeah, they did. I, 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 judging at the Bath and West, I remember judging the, the MLC tested passes. Uh-huh. And I said to my steward, move that limousine ball up and put it in second place. He said, it's a South <laughs> Let's move on and talk about uh, who you perceive to be some of the, the better breeders, the stronger breeders, maybe, especially in the commercial side, maybe through the 60s. In the 50s, the late 50s, John Arnott Haymark was selling about 60 bulls a year to average 1,000 apiece. Because my father and I used to go down there regularly to see old John. Mm-hmm. And at one stage he had 90 bulls on the place. Good Lord, did he really? From calves up to ready yeah. to sell. Right. He was selling about 60 bulls a year to average a thousand apiece. Wow. And he was selling purity crossing people. Tom the Robinsons of this world were yeah. all buying Angus in those days. Then when the bulls got smaller, they all switched to Charolais. Yes, yeah. Now they switched back again. Yeah. But John Arnott and Willie McLaren Sr., mm-hmm. they were only interested in, in breeding really good crossing bulls. Mm-hmm. And every now and then, of course, they had one or two that made a lot of money which for... Is, which is the way pedigree breeding should yeah. be, really, isn't it? We, know, we all know that. Yeah, when many of the, of the high-priced bulls were just cows, was there an age limit back then? There was no age limit. No. But I think the average age, I think I'm right in saying, in 1963 was about 11 months. About 11 months, yeah. But there was no... So were there older bull classes? Because they had a there lot were, of... There was a, big, there, was, there was a big broken age class uh-huh. at one stage. It was a called broken a, age, so over a certain age. It was called a broken age. Right. It, it, what age would that be over? It varied from okay. um, about 12 to 17 months. Right. And it used to 
completely muck up some of the overseas judges. I mean, Michael White, I remember when he came judging, mm-hmm. he got mixed up in that class of 70 bulls. <laughs> With a huge age spread, yes, and yeah. you're completely mixed up. Yes. And I'm not surprised to be no, anyone really. got mixed up. Be all sorts and then of they, they broke the they stopped they broke the classes down. Uh-huh. Now, of course, it's done. There's count off numbers. Lots of classes Lots of done by age, uh-huh. and it was amazing how many uh-huh. bulls were born on the first of the month. You know, just uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's still going on as we know. But they don't, they don't know nowadays, they don't know what the class is going to be age-wise. No, no, that I see, I understand. They just, they just count off, let's say, 14, if there's 200 bulls and they want X number of classes, they just divide by whatever. Can, can you give me the names of some of the exporters? Because I'm struggling to, to clarify, Jimmy Schofield was one I'm aware of, but who were the people that were buying bulls to, to ship? Well, the main people in the 50s were, were Jimmy Schofield, was the number one for Argentina, right. Murray Alexander, Peter Gammy. Uh, Peter lived in Argentina. Uh-huh. Did he? Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, I don't... Because some of these men would buy to order, but other ones, from what I can gather, would buy to gamble, is that right? Oh, uh, there was a big sale. Uh, Bullrichers had a big sale in Buenos Aires um, for, if you like, dealt bulls. Yes. They, 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 they did buy for to order. Mm-hmm. But going back... In my time, they weren't buying as many um, to gamble with. Okay, that was the earlier boys that were gambling. In the twenties, I seem to remember when I was out in Argentina, Federico Bullrich showing me the catalogue for the imported bull sale in 1921, and there were something like 600 bulls. Really? Of of the three breeds. Oh, wow. Yeah. But they were still doing a bit, because mm-hmm. I remember Moby Alexander, I think, probably unprintable this, but... Mm-hmm. He uh, he bought some bulls to to sell at Bullrich's yard. Bullrich's were the, Bullrich's, that was the name. They were the auctioneers oh, in, in Buenos Aires, uh-huh. and he bought these these when he, when they got to Montevideo, he didn't like the look of the bulls too much, uh-huh. so, so uh, they fell over the side. <laughs> <laughs> so they say. Uh-huh. But no, I, I gather that some that some men made a lot of money, but some they lost a lot of money. Oh, on really? A few of them as well. What would he Jim, cost? Jimmy Schofield was the mm-hmm. the most successful and the most able. Uh-huh. Was he? And it was used to fun because um, Jimmy, Jimmy always he always bid himself, but Mowbray Alexander and Peter Gammy didn't like each other to know what right. they were bidding. And okay. Mowbray always used to come into our office, our room in the morning of the sale, and tell us what bulls he he was interested in. We marked them with a big red A, okay. and we bid for him. Oh, did he? Right. And he just shook his pencil when he wanted to stop. Uh-huh. And I remember one day. He did that, and then about ten minutes later, Peter Gammy came in mm-hmm. and, and said, "I'd like you to bid for a bull for me." Oh no! So I looked it up, and it had a big red A on it. Oh, so right. I put a big blue G on top. Uh-huh. And when uh-huh. that bull came in, I just counted numbers, uh-huh. and the two of them were looking at him and see who the hell was bidding. Then <laughs> <laughs> eventually, Mowbray shook his pen, and I knocked it down to Peter Gammy, and Mowbray was furious. <laughs> I can imagine so. But they were great. Yeah, they were the main. They were the Argentine. Exporters. Uh-huh. This is what I was going to come on to: is, is who are the ones for different areas? America, the Americans mainly bought. Um, they mainly bought for themselves. Or there was a chap who was a sales manager in America called McCorkle, J. B. McCorkle. He came and bought one or two bulls for people. Uh-huh. Clint Thompson of Harding and Harding arranged all the shipping, the insurance for the bulls going to the states. To the states, okay. Yeah. Yes. 
They must have, they must have came over and bought all the center managers over the herd managers over. They, they weren't bought by agents in my time. No. But going back to the Argentinians for a second, then who, who did the shipping down then? Was there one company shipped them all or they all shipped their own? Neil Stanford would do most of the shipping. Yeah, Neil Stanford. He did all the shipping to the States and he did quite a lot to the Argentine. Although the lack of Mowbray and... Yeah, Mowbray, Mowbray did his own. He organised his own shipping. Uh-huh. I'm not quite sure who did it for him. But there isn't much business in live shipping now because no, it's all got too expensive. It's all semen or it's all embryo, embryos or whatever. Mm. And how many bulls would be on the way if they ship them all together? Would they be because there were a lot of females as well at one time? Wouldn't they be taken? There weren't a lot of females in my time. I think oh. a lot of females much earlier on. I see. Okay. Foundation start. Yes. That would be really in my, my grandfather's time. Right. Was, was, because this started. The shipping started about eighteen eighty uh-huh. something. Uh-huh. Shepherd, shepherds, shepherds, they did shipping as well as as buying. Mm-hmm. That's going way back before the First War. Uh-huh. There was a chap called Bob Duncan, he was a big exporter before the First War. Right. And uh, McKellen, but there were mm-hmm. people I never knew. But they would take, it seems that they would take a lot of females and, and, and would they have robbed the, 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 the breed over here by taking a lot of the good families with, away with them? Not to the extent that it happened to the Galloways no. more recently, people exporting all their best ones to Germany. Germany, yes, yeah, yeah. And then Foot and Mouth came along and yeah. the rest were sorted and uh, yeah. it's been a right mess of the, yeah. some of the Galloway herds. The Highlanders did it. In a, in a bit and the Melton Galloways just definitely disappeared yes. as a result of the two things. Yes, yes. Were there veterinary requirements for bulls to be shipped? Oh, they have yes. to qualify on what they have to qualify on? It was, but they were pretty straightforward. They, they were tested um, TB, Jones, which was... Never, they were tested for Jones back then? Were they? Oh, that's uh, interesting. But it wasn't, I mean, no one paid much attention to that because yeah. it wasn't, and still they haven't got a proper test for it. Yeah. They used to reckon that if a bull was high in its avian and failed the couple fixation test, that it, it, it would probably have Jones disease. Oh, I see. But it didn't necessarily follow. Yeah. And it didn't follow that if it didn't have a high avian and, and mm. passed the fixation test, it didn't have Jones. So a lot of the bulls would have gone out there with Jones. Yeah, yes. brucellosis, of course. They had brucellosis three, as yeah. well, yeah, yeah. But those, they, again, they wouldn't be, there'd be TB about it. There wouldn't be a lot of brucellosis back, back then, would that be later? In my time, yeah, because we, we. I can't remember when brucellosis testing came in. I remember us testing all the time. We used to run 500 bull beef through the farm, and I remember us testing the 60s. regularly. But that was in the 70s when I remember it, so yes, when it was. Well, I'm trying to remember because Aberdeenshire was one of the last parts of the country to go brucellosis free. Okay. And in the old days, and even just in my time, um, there were no f- bulls sold in the autumn in Perth. Mm-hmm or anywhere else for that matter, they were all sold in the spring. Yes. But there were big female sales in Aberdeen and big female sales in the autumn in Perth. Mm-hmm. And then when Aberdeenshire failed to go brucellosis free, the Aberdeen sales of females, which we used to hold in Kitty Brewster. In they, where? They stopped. Kitty? Kitty Brewster, in the, okay. in the agricultural hall Kitty Brewster, which right. we used to own. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, and I think I sold it to Aberdeen Northern Marts later on. Uh-huh. <laughs> I used, to, I, was, I used to go up and sell bulls in Aberdeen. Did you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> that, Aberdeen. Was in, that was in just immediately after Perth. Uh-huh. Okay. Would there be different types of bulls for the Argentine than there would be to the American? Or, or, and, and again? No, they're much the same type. Mm-hmm. But the Americans started actually buying families. Yeah. They were more interested in, in, you know, in buying 
pure prides and things like that. Uh, and, and, and they had to be black. Yeah. And, and the size was just the same for the States as it was for Argentina at that time. Uh-huh. But the Americans wanted families. Mm-hmm. And certain families they didn't want. Can you remember which families? Somebody mentioned it yesterday, and I've probably got to oh, remember. Oh, well, Brides, Brides and John Erica's and John Erica's and all the all yeah. the, the fashionable names. Uh-huh. They were the ones they wanted. Uh-huh. The pure pride of Gay Drew was was was. Went to Ankeny. I think it went to Ankeny. All the bulls weren't small. There was a bull sold privately to Ankeny from Belladrum, Ballot of Belladrum. Now Ballot. It was sold privately right. by Colonel Mary Belladrum and went to uh, Leishman and at, at, at Ankeny Farms. And in 1954, my father and I were, went, went to the States and we went round a few herds of Angus and Shorthorn. Uh-huh. And I've got somewhere in this house, I will have a photograph of my father standing beside Ballot. Uh-huh. And my father was over six feet and Ballot was a big bull. Was he? Okay. In spite of the fact that everyone said bulls were too small, Ballot was a big bull. And that was Leishman that had him, was it? He was, yeah, Ankeny Farms. Um, Alan Ryan and Lee Leishman were partners at Ankeny Farms originally. The other interesting thing was Elevate. If you look at, if you see pictures in this one down in, in Sterling of Elevate of Eastfield, he looks quite small. Mm-hmm. He was at Rattic Leapers only about 11 months. But I saw Elevate about three years later in America and he was a big bull. Was he? Okay. He grew. So these bulls were growing on. And he bred bloody well too. Uh-huh. He's one he, of the... he grew. A small bull here. Yeah, was he? Because he looked at it, but he was just a young cub. Yeah. Over, over, over well, they tried to make cub. them look small as well. I mean, they were so high a store. Yeah. They seemed to try to make them look small. So. I, the, the, the bull that started Tom, Tom Bruce, his father's herd, really uh-huh. was a bull called Newhouse Edward Erickson. Edward Erickson. Okay. Which Matthew Templeton, go back a wee bit, Bob Adam used to sell his, the bulls he didn't think were fit for Perth, he sent them up to Aberdeen right. in okay. the hopes that no one would sort of buy them except crossing men. Right. And Matthew Templeton went up to Aberdeen because he, he, he wanted, he, he knew Erickson was going there. Uh-huh. And my father was selling, and I think I'm right in saying that Matthew Templeton was out at 1,300 guineas. And mm-hmm. my father said, You'll, you need him, Matthew, I'll just put in a bed for you. And uh-huh. Went to 1400 and knocked it down to Matthew Templeton. Right. And Matthew was furious. <laughs> but that bull went home and did hellish well at um, Charterhouse, but it, it made the Eastfield herd. It's, right. That, it really made it. Okay. Because they shared the bull. Oh, they shared it between them? Yeah. Okay. What about, just while on, on the exports, what about the, the South Africans and the Kiwis? Because obviously they were buying as well, but they'd be buying different There was one, the Kiwis didn't buy much. Late yeah, towards the end of the 60s, I seem to think. I've seen to, I've 64 uh, would be the centenary of the bull sales, and Jack Evans judged the Angus and the Shorthorns. Mm-hmm. And there were two things New Zealanders bought the year before, that year, and the year after. Okay. But they were these, these the people that were buying them disappeared off the scene. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They were buying fashionable small bulls again. Right. The. Most of the good New Zealand herds they bought in this country in the 30s, yes. uh-huh. and they didn't 
by the smaller bulls in the 50s and, and in other words, ruin their own cattle. Yes, yes. They kept their cattle big and uh-huh. just didn't import from Britain, except for these one or two people who did, and they've never been heard of since. And, and when they started improving, then they, a lot of their genetics came back from, from yeah. Canada and the US, I yeah. believe. So, I mean, a lot of the well, New Zealand cattle are coming sure, in. Well, I'm not sure well, how much that improved them. No, yeah. a, lot, no, a lot of the New Zealand genetics that are coming in now, a lot of them are, are yeah. from um, um, a female the, history is going back, as you said, 60, 70 years, but it's American, it's American right. bulls in the last five or six years older. The, the best herd I ever saw in New Zealand was Tamania. Tamania, yes, I know. Frank Wilding. Then, of course, Tamania in Australia was Frank Wilding's sister. One of two people, there was a chap called Mackenzie, used to buy for South Africa. Uh-huh. But that, I think he was in Zimbabwe, but I'm not sure. Uh-huh. But there weren't very many black bulls or one or two shorthorns going to South Africa. Uh-huh. Not very many Angus bulls. Mackenzie's the only chap I can think of. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, Australia. They didn't buy much. No, they were, they were more Hereford focused, I think, would it be? They bought, they bought Hereford, they bought one or two shorthorns. Mm-hmm. There was a chap, Lou Harris, okay. Sir Lou Harris. He came across in 1953 as joint manager of the, they weren't called All Blacks then, the Kiwi Rugby Team. Oh, right, okay. Mm-hmm. And he went home with two tiger moths and two shorthorn bulls. <laughs> And started crop spraying. <laughs> but he, I went up to his place. He had a thousand shorthorn cows. Really? Wow. And uh-huh. he bred as he were doing sheep. He lugmarked them. Uh-huh. And he would cross a back half bull with four half cows uh-huh. and so on like that. Uh-huh. Yeah, super hard of cattle. Yeah. Yeah. But. Um, He'd be further north and would it would, would he be. Was, he was up Hastings, where Napier, Napier actually. Oh, we're back in, in, we're in New Zealand again, sorry. In New Zealand. Sorry, Napier, I thought not yes. Hastings, we were up Napier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But anyway, that's beside. Then there weren't too many cattle going from this country to Australia or New Zealand. Yeah. And likewise, very few coming back. But I wonder why that was. Whether it was health issues, because I mean, I took I Belgium. They were quite happy with what they had. <laughs> that's probably a good reason, as any, isn't it? Then Tamania, you see, Frank Wilder's sister started the Tamania herd in Australia, which is the best herd of cattle I've seen in Australia. Uh-huh. Um, I sold blacks the, again, or shorthorns? Blacks. Blacks. Mm-hmm. I sold the bull for her mm-hmm. in 1978 as a guest auctioneer out there. Uh-huh. Right. No, they didn't buy too many. In New Zealand, the the good breeders in New Zealand didn't buy much from this country after the war. They had had good cattle of their own. In fact, if you look back at some of the photographs of the cattle in this country in the Mm -hmm. 30s, they're what we're we're selling now. Yes, yes, I've seen Good cattle. Well, someone said it's easier. It's easier to put quality on size than size on quality. Absolutely. That's why it took so long to get the size back in yes, again. Yeah. Right, the, the Irish cattle I was going to go on to, because I think Ireland managed to keep a bit of size about, about their breed as well without diluting it too much to the, the small one. But when did they start bringing cattle, or did they always bring cattle to Perth? Because the Irish boys. No, they didn't. We didn't. I, in my time, I we didn't sell all that many Irish cattle in, the, in that period, in uh-huh. the 60s and 70s. But, there were very few. Irish cattle coming across, which Walter Short would be one of the few people who brought Angus across. Uh-huh. There was a big split, of course, you see, the, the Irish Angus Society started, yeah. and they were buying American cattle, uh-huh. pure American cattle. Could they buy this? Because one of the reasons was we couldn't get cattle in from America, that's why I was asking from Canada. The, the Irish could. The Irish could get them in, could they? Well, that would make a bit of cross-border trade going on then, I guess. Yeah, but we couldn't, we couldn't, we, we, in theory, we weren't were no. supposed to get them, but... Uh-huh. I was managing an estate over in Donegal uh-huh. um, in the 
70s, uh-huh. I suppose. And we had a, the, the farm manager came across and bought a, a, a heifer in Scotland and took it to Ireland. You weren't supposed to do that, yeah. but he did it. And it was shown in Ireland at various shows. And it seemed to walk across the border and get shown in the North of Ireland as well. And that was strictly against yes, the rules. Yes, yes. <laughs> but the Irish do things like that. Yeah, we had a flock of 600 ewes. We never clipped a ewe in the Republic. They were all, somewhere along the line, they were all clipped in the... <laughs> they kept their, their strain of cattle. They weren't buying yeah, Scottish but they were, cattle. They were, they were no bigger than the ones here. Oh, were they not? No. No. Oh, OK. The, the leader of the Breakaway Society was a chap called Conor Carrigan. He was a Tipperary. Tom uh-huh. Mel. Now, he bought... A half brother of a city of Abdun Side the same year. It was called Jesedi of Abdun Side. Uh-huh. And that wasn't a big bull. Yeah. And I went out with my wife, we went to stay with him and looked at the cattle. And it was a disaster. We were there for, supposed to be for the weekend. And on the Friday night, it was a lovely evening, we went out and looked. He would show us his new stock bull, Jesedi of Abdun Side. Mm-hmm. What did I think of it? And I, being diplomatic, said what I thought. And I thought, Fine, yeah, yeah. I'd like to see him on the side, the better here or whatever. Then he made a great mistake. He asked my wife what she thought of him. She destroyed the ball and then stamped on the pieces. So the next morning, Carlos said, I'm sorry you can't stay. <laughs> and booked us into a hotel. Oh, no. <laughs> there are some good Catholics yeah. in Ireland. There always were. Yeah. But they... They weren't, at that time, they were no bigger than the cattle here. Oh, that was the other one. Um, and then all of a sudden, the, the export trade stopped. It stopped for, for various reasons. One reason was that um, the main reason people were importing cattle from these countries, or whatever country you like, mm-hmm. was, was to improve their stock, mm-hmm. to get it up to a certain standard. Well, eventually they got to the standard they wanted to, mm-hmm. and they didn't need to buy and it. And as simple as that? That was one reason. The other reason was that the price of shipping animals went through the roof. Okay. It was yeah. uh, basically because they, they, they bought all the cattle they needed to... Mm-hmm. And then the whole thing turned around, we started buying back. Yes, I know. <laughs> so it, it, Although we never bought a lot back from Argentina, and still haven't, which, which yeah. amazes me. Well, I don't you're allowed to. No, I suppose that's, it was, it's down to the laws, because we couldn't for, buy out of America. For the Yes. No, that's why, you know, it's, uh, all beef that's imported from Argentina is, has to be off the boat. Ah, right. For okay. that reason. Yeah, they have to put them out. They vaccinate for it there, don't they? So therefore it's an, well, an, an endemic when, problem, when, isn't it? When, 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 in 61, when I first went out there, we went for a trip around the, the Liebig Estatus, which were basically Hereford or, or Santa Gertrudis. Uh-huh. And one place we went to, they were, they were in the middle of a foot and mouth outbreak. Were they? Uh-huh. And I brought back some, a couple of rawhide bridles, which was, I should, was totally against the law. <laughs> the forefront, I took a load of cattle out, an airplane load of cattle out to China in, what, 76? Okay. I think. Angus, Shortlands? Three breeds. Right. Angus Shorthorn and Herefords, 70 cattle. Mm-hmm. I flew them out from Gatwick and went with them. Really? It was quite an interesting journey. Yes, I would say. Certainly. The whole airplane cost 28,000. Really? That's all. Uh-huh. Wow. And what, um, I've basically come, we've come around full circle now to Campbell Graham bringing the, bringing the first cattle back in in, in, in 71. That's his father, actually, John Graham. He brought the whole of a show team, a show stream. And I sold them a farm. Five from McGrath, was the farm, was the business. Nuts and bolts. Right, is that and what it is? Nuts and bolts, Graham. Oh, really? Okay. The father was. Right. 
Do you remember the Dunkeld House of Tennis? Yes. Well, that was Tangier, that was bought by a chap called, that used to belong to a chap called Mickey Gold, mm -hmm. Tangier Park. He had an Angus herd, a pretty bad one. Mm -hmm. And I sold that farm to John Graham, Lock, Stock and Barrel. Mm -hmm. And that's, John Graham kept, and Campbell Graham subsequently kept the prefix Tangier. Right, okay. And the, they imported a bull, well, John Graham imported the whole of this, the, sh the show team from this herd, I can't remember, the name, in Canada. Mm -hmm. And then he bought a bull called Mariner. It was known as, it was called, he imported a bull from Canada, and it was called Mariner of Tangier. Uh -huh. And that, that was a good bull. That, that bull actually did well on, on the Newhouse cows. Uh -huh. But by that time, the Newhouse cows just about been to be sold. But, but, but one of those, I think, Tangier bulls was sold actually in Perth, wasn't it? Was that the yeah, one? Yeah. I certainly saw the one was top price in Perth, I think, in 70-something. Yes, yeah. I don't remember what that bull was, but mm -hmm. yes, that, that was in John Graham's time. Then Campbell Graham took over, and Campbell actually was, I think, more interested and probably better with his short horns than his Angus. Okay. So what was your opinion of the first cattle that came in? And, I mean, how did you, as a, well, as that, I remember that showed that, that string of females was one of them just of a bloody good cattle. They were big, they were. but they had they had quality about mm -hmm. them. They were big. They were good big cattle, but and they were pure Angus. Uh -huh. But then you see what happened was because the breeders in this country were looking for size. There were all sorts of funny things came out of the backwoods of Canada, mm -hmm. and you wouldn't know how they were bred. No, no and that well, Canadian colossal, the very first big bull mm -hmm. that came out of the backwoods. I I, I believe that he was actually a pure red Angus, he was a kind of a sport. Mm -hmm. Drew Adam and I were over at Denver at the National Western and we went up to see this bull. Mm -hmm. Dave Canning was a sales manager and a bit of a sort of dealer chap. Mm -hmm. um, and he took us up to see the bull and we, we looked at it and I remember he said to Drew, what do you think of the bull, mm -hmm. Mr. Adam? And Drew looked around him again. He said, well, he's big. <laughs> he, wasn't, he was a pretty plain old bugger. Yeah, yeah. Funnily enough, Elevator Eastfield was bred to a lot of the daughters of Canadian Colossal, and that was a great success. Because well, okay. okay. they combined the size and got the quality back in. Yeah, put the quality back into them, so it went that way. But then, you see, all the others tried to imitate and, big, and produce big bulls and... Oh, <laughs> As I say, the Wings and Holsteins, Kinnino, Godos, Romagnola, everything. Then you mentioned Shorthorns uh -huh. coming in, yeah. Shorthorns crossing the Spey. Yes. Uh, there was a bull, I can't think what year it was, but it would be in the late 60s, maybe. Uh -huh. Sir Alfred Goodson bought a bull in Perth for 12,000 from a small breeder in Aberdeenshire. Uh -huh. And it was a bloody good bull, he was big. Uh -huh. But he, he was a decent bull. And Two years later, I went down to see the first calves of this that were coming to Perth, and they were thumping calves. They weren't clipped out or anything, they were just there, and they were big, decent calves, and they never came to Perth. Mm -hmm. And it turned out that when they tipped them, they all got the stumps of horns. And it turned out their father was half short horn. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the chap, I can't remember his name, it's just as well maybe, the yeah. breeder in Aberdeenshire, he was thrown out of the herd. Oh, right, okay. So they started to police it in those days. Well, I think going earlier, going back in the 20s, I think it was, could get away with, with having breeder unknown on the pedigree. And, and, yeah, and but I don't know why, people, if they mm. just had an experimental register, you could have said what you'd yeah. done. Yeah, yes. And 
Inevitably, if you cross two pure breeds, yes. you, you get you unless you do cross a Holstein with a Jersey or something, mm -hmm. uh, you're going to get the best of both breeds. If, 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 you, if, you, if you select, yes, if you select. And the shorthorn and and Angus are so complementary to each other mm -hmm. that that's the obvious thing yeah. to get to do. Except yeah. at that time, the shorthorns are too small as well yes. on the whole. Yeah, which is why the Canadians, who didn't have the rule book that we had, is why the Canadians were allowed carte blanche to breed anything and do anything and, and, and get away but with they, it. But they wrote, oh, they were there in the Angus breed, they didn't. They no, they didn't. Breed uh, short breed, they in the shorthorn breed, the, you, you saw exactly what they were doing. Yeah. No, in the Angus breed, they didn't do that. And, no, and, it's a great shame. We used to sell a hell of a lot of Canadian stock cattle before mm -hmm. the war. I don't know if somebody realised that or not. No, I didn't, no. But they used to come over by the boatload. Really? Great big raw Hereford cross cattle. Oh, I didn't know. That. And Ken Clark, who was with Jim Lingle, he used to come over with shipments of store cattle from Canada before right. the war. Right, okay. And they used to come to Liverpool and then they were bought by the auctioneers, my grandfather or McDougall of Midland Marts, and they took them and sold them and hoped, really? and hoped they'd make money off them. Wow, I didn't know that. No, I didn't know they could. And Ken Clark. He he, I, he once asked me to go over and deliver a paper at some conference in the States, uh -huh. near Washington. Uh -huh. The first Canadian influence bulls reached Perth in about 76 or 77, would that be right? Yeah, but no later than that. Uh -huh. And uh, what was your opinion of those then? Were they, were, they, were they bringing in some good, some reasonable cattle in then, or were they, were they already well, yeah, extreme? Yeah, there were some which I wouldn't have, wouldn't have given much house room to, but... The, no. I can't remember the names of them now. Okay. Tom Bruce, he, 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 he found two big bulls in the north of England, whose names I forget, about the same time, and they had quite an influence. Right, okay. But he found them just, they were being used at a crossing on, you know, as, as commercial bulls, uh -huh. and he bought them. Uh -huh. Well, they weren't particularly extreme, and then when the first ones coming in, it was only later they went for bigger and bigger. They got, they got plainer, they were... They they were they made the cattle look big from the side, uh -huh. and they were narrow brutes. But then the old story of it's easier to put size on uh, quality on yeah. size than size and quality came into play. And yeah. They yeah. got them so big and tall uh -huh. that you know it was easier to refine them. Sure. You can't go the other way, but yeah. you can come with them. Absolutely, which is which they're doing now. Which, which, which they are still doing. They're doing now. They come down again, aren't they? Which is yeah. something we'll come on to in a second. There's Actually, still too many bad ones around, though. No, absolutely. Right, so the, I started mentioning the, the October sale in, in, in 71, I think you started the, the October sale, but that was even more, you said, for the, for, the, for the new breeds. It was started before then, but the first time I ever got all the breeds together mm -hmm. in one week was 72. Right, okay. okay. Because the, you know, the, the, the autumn sales for bulls started when the Continentals came in. Yes. Because people wanted to cover a different time of year, so yes. they wanted bulls at a different time of year. Yes. But they were all in different weeks, and the Angus female sale, which they started selling bulls in the autumn and so did the shorthorns, they were all different weeks, mm -hmm. and it was a pain mm -hmm. in the neck. Yes. And I, it, took me, it took me at least two years of arguing before I could persuade them, them all to, to come together in one, one week. One and 1972 was the first time uh -huh. we actually had the multi-breed sale, right. as it's called. I hate the uh -huh. word, but... Yeah. So I hate modern words like downsizing and multi-breed, I hate these words. <laughs> they tend to all come from America really. I think. I know. Um, and the, so the Charolais sales began, when did the Charolais start to come into that? Well, the first, first Charolais sale was, was at the Royal Show in a tent. 
Oh, really? And I think 1968 or thereby. Okay. Uh-huh. We had 14 bulls, I remember. Mm-hmm. Were you involved in bringing some of those in? Yeah, I mm-hmm. sold I sold, well, I sold four out of the 14. Uh-huh. One, the only one that made any decent money at all was Helen Lodge Emperor, 5,800 guineas to David Walter at Belthorpe. Uh-huh. My next door neighbour, actually. Uh-huh. And I remember that sale well because there were all these shadow people. Said, Who's this chap Fraser? Uh-huh. And two of my best friends, Nigel Thornton Kemsey and Wynne Colville, were there. And they said, oh, he'll be in the bar. He always gets drunk when he, before a sale. We have to hold him up in the box. <laughs> Whereupon I came out of the Angus tent. <laughs> and, and they said, look, there, told you. <laughs> so I was accused. I was actually accused by the, the council of the Sharonet Society of being drunk. <laughs> that was the start of it. Then we had two or three sales at the Royal Show for Sharonet. After that, in the horse, in the horse, the big horse place. All right. I think only for two years. And then they started coming to Perth? Well, we fell out with the Charolais Society because they wanted a name of an auctioneer appointed as official auctioneer. They didn't want, for instance, McDonald Fraser and Company. They wanted a name like R.L. Fraser or Jack Carroll or yeah. whoever. Yeah. So Archie Beach, Berwick, right. he was made the official auctioneer. Uh-huh, okay. But then the Northern Charolais Breeders Association, they said, well, we're going to Perth, because that's where the market is. Uh-huh. And the main Charolais Society had to follow suit. <laughs> but they, did, they just wanted, the, the council wanted an, an individual name, and that's I wasn't right. about to play, because no, I said, we'll, appoint, we'll tell you who's going to sell, but it's the uh-huh. company who are the auctioneers. Uh-huh. How, how quickly did, uh, going back to the Angus, how quickly did the, did the Angus... Commercial breeders switch over, and I suppose the answer to that is there weren't any Anglo commercial, but uh, commercial Angus buyers, or very few commercial Angus buyers back then. Or how well, fast did they turn? They, they went through it. There was a difficult phase because the people that started buying Angus bulls again, mm-hmm. you know, when they came back, they were looking for easy carving, uh-huh. yes. and the whole thing got kind of mucked up a bit because because of the Holstein influence. Uh-huh. And some of the people, dairy farmers who were buying Angus bulls for easy carving, were not having easy carving. Well, they're not, no. Because they were, you know, too much Holstein, too much Kianina. Yeah. So there was a a phase when there were, I can remember well, two or three people coming and saying, well, these bulls are no use. The commercial farmer, the beef farmer, they they weren't getting quality with the, the... the first of the big Angus when they came back, because they weren't quality, they were tall, narrow yeah. brutes. Yeah. Yeah. But it took a while, I don't know, I couldn't honestly say when the confidence returned. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the, in the meantime, they were switching quite quickly to, yeah. to, to the Yeah, I know, I can tell you why. The Charolais wouldn't be easy carving either, would they, for good thing? Not, not the early ones. The early ones, some of those border Charolais with shoulders on them. They had a reputation for, for difficult carvings, and I think one of the reasons they tell me one of the reasons was that because they had this reputation, they tended to interfere. Uh-huh. Uh, to okay, rather than let them get on with it. Rather than let them get yeah, on with it. That's, that's, that's a, an accusation that you can throw at the Texel sheep breed the same way. The Texel sheep yes, will land themselves a lot better, but yeah. too many Texel breeders yeah. want to interfere and don't give them the time. So, people well, were frightened. They were frightened they were going to get this huge calf, so they interfered and uh-huh. things went wrong. Not so much the huge calf. It was the shoulder. calves don't want to live. No. They're too big. Yeah. Yeah. In fact... What's his name? Who was the... Uh, Tony Harmon, who would be one of the main yeah. and first importers, yeah. took yeah. me across to France 
to Nevers to the Charlotte thing there because he thought you know, it would be my interest to learn a bit more about them. But the one thing I learned there was that the French Charlotte breeders did not want big calves. No. They wanted light calves, mm. little calves, mm. little calves grow, big calves yeah. just didn't want to live. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, I suppose that's when the, the figures start to come into it a little yeah. bit, don't they? And yeah. I think the French people started, super, people started talking about calving indexes and things like yeah. that. And yeah. Well, it was round about the same time, wasn't it? The, the, the birth of the MLC recording and all that sort of yeah. thing came in with that breed. So just well, I had a huge, a huge row with the MLC, but that's neither here nor there. Because well, I refused to publish figures in the Perth catalogues until they meant something. And daily live weight gains meant nothing. For all, all breeds. For all, all breeds. Yeah. That's daily, an interesting daily live weight gains were misleading. That's an interesting it's statement, that, actually, because... It, 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 my thinking behind that was that the original daily live weight gain, if you knew how that was arrived at, yes. what the animal was being fed on, yes. then that was fine. But if you didn't know, then it was misleading. Absolutely. Yes. You'd say, you'd buy a bull that's put on four pounds a day, but you didn't know how it was put on four no. pounds a day. Yeah. So I just refused point blank to publish the figures and had a big row with the MLC over it. I think the figures mean something now, and the other good thing is that they've, they've got off the they've got onto the Australian system, yes, yeah, which has right. always made more sense yeah. than the MLC yeah. one to me. Yes, yes, indeed. And all breeds are using the same mm -hmm. figures, which yeah. helps. Yeah. yeah, My father always just said, I still believe it. A good animal follows its head. Uh huh. And if you if you're going in to buy store cattle. Yeah. And you see a pair of attractive heads looking at you, go yeah, and look, yeah, yeah, and then yeah. you look at the rest of the animal. I'm a great believer. Now, people, a lot of people say the head doesn't matter, you can't eat it. It's a lot of dribble. My grandfather um, said the wider the nose, the more grass they could eat in one that's bite. Right, there's some big mushing yeah. mach mowing yeah. machines on yeah. the front. That, Dick McQuincy used to say that about Herefords. Yeah. He said they're no use with these snipey noses, they've got a yeah. big, big, big mowing machines on the front. Yeah. Yeah. Just continuing with these uh, um, continental imports. People who bought Charolais were not farmers. Uh -huh. The people that bought Simmental were. Oh, okay, that's an interesting comment. And yeah. there were a totally, totally different bunch of people to deal with, the mm -hmm. councils of the two societies. The Charolais people council, apart from Tony Harmon, um, were not cattlemen. No. They were just businessmen, and the Simmental people were the exact opposite. Uh -huh. okay. I, I, had sold, I, had, I held the first sale of, auction sale of Simmental in the country, too. Really? In a field uh -huh. at um, uh, Fingas Castle, in, uh -huh. just above in the cars. Uh -huh. they, they used to come in, in, in ballots. You balloted for imports. Right. There were two heifers left over. So the three people who wanted the two, who you know, were hoping to get one, gathered them together in a field and we <laughs> auctioned these two heifers and my commission was a bottle of whiskey. <laughs> really? Oh, I see. Right. Did you ever get involved in, in importing the, the Angus yourself? I mean, were you, were you advising of bringing them in? You obviously saw the, I was the capital used. coming in. No, I was used. Mm -hmm. uh, but I went out to New Zealand and I bought myself two shorthorn bulls oh, right. of my own herd. Uh -huh. And a chap called Jack Dithwaite who was an agent, a stock agent out there, wanted some Angus imported from New Zealand to this country right. because it would be good publicity. <laughs> so he got four heifers from Frank Wilder at Timania uh -huh. and I've forgotten where the bull came from. And they were purportedly imported by me to this country. Right. I didn't know anything about it. 
<laughs> really? Okay, so you were. But you, I ended up. I had to find a home for them, and in fact, I assessed cattle. Yeah, yeah. And I think they. I think the whole four. The four heifers went to Tom. Tom. Tom yeah, Stewart. Stewart. Okay. And then one of them ended up. I think in the Queen Mother's herd. Uh huh. So I'm, I'm sort of moving towards the end of this now, but moving into the into the nineties, really, when the commercial trade started to pick up, when the boys started to come back. Well, nineteen ninety was. I think probably the worst year for for the Angus breed. That was in the new first year in the new market. I was at that sale. I had shown it, was, it, it wasn't yeah. a sale. It was I. I hated that. I, uh -huh. the, the cattle were rubbish. Uh -huh. No one wanted them, and no one bought them. How many? There were only about seventy or eighty there. Yeah, remember, it, was, it was dreadful. There was there was one bull sold. Alan McCaig sold it, uh -huh. and that was a phony sale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was anyone. Well, only anyone but anyone if any It was a dreadful sale, yeah. that. And, that yeah. and, and, and the cattle were really bad. Mm -hmm. They were neither. They were just tall, useless things. Yeah. And, and from then, obviously, we go back to where we move on 10, well, we move on 25 years, but if we move on 10 years, during that 10 years, the anger started to come to prominence. Oh, again. things started to change. And, and this was, do you think this was driven by the commercial demand from the commercial men, or was it driven by the brand of the breed, the brand of the beef? A combination of both, but yeah. mainly by the, the commercial men wanting to buy Angus. Uh, and they want Angus for, for, for stock bulls, or do they want them for, for breeding females? Just for, just for meatiness. For, for meat, for, yeah. The like of Bobby Robinson, Snipe House had a huge influence on 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 all the, the beef producing farmers in the north of England and that and the south and the bit of the borders. Really, by moving away from what he did, people followed yeah. because he had five hundred cows. He sold and, and more than that. I think he, he was a market leader. Yeah, yes. And I couldn't see him yet when he came up to Perth. All the other farmers would sit below him, the, the ones he was sort of looking after. Uh -huh. or, or We're looking up to him, yeah. And Bobby sat up the top with his long stick and uh -huh. when a bull came in that he thought suited that farmer, he poked him in the chap bin. Really? And, yeah, it was wonderful. Right. The character of a man he was. So, so he, he would be one of the men who, you know, the commercial men who would be influenced. And I suppose if you multiply him by two or three around the country, they yeah, would be the ones. Yeah, I mean, the Macintosh down at Stranoir. Uh -huh. yeah. He's got 2,200 cows now. Yes, really. Um, he, when I first met him coming to Perth, he had 1,400 cows, he, was, he was, was not buying Angus at all. Uh, now he's buying Angus again. Yeah. And People like that start a trend. Obviously the trend is also driven by the, 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 again, eventually driven by the certification scheme where, they can, where they've got a guaranteed outlet for these things into Scotland. There's no doubt that was Waitrose coming in yeah. and, and people like that and the certification scheme all coming in, it all happened at much the same time. Yeah had a huge influence on the commercial farmer on what breed he should buy. Mm -hmm. It's quite interesting, I find. When I, when I stopped work in 92, and both my wife and I thought, what on earth is it? She thought, what am I going to do with the bugger? And I thought, what am I going to do with myself? Mm -hmm. So I went to the Aeroside and said, I can, I can do for you. And they didn't have a fieldsman in, the, in, the, in England. I think it used to be Jack Lawson, but he'd retired. Oh, right. So they asked me to go down, and because I live in Perth, everything south of Manchester was my patch. Uh -huh. And one of the first things I had to do down in the southwest was advise people what to do with the cow they'd bought. Uh -huh. Because there were a lot of people who moved out of town, uh -huh. moved out of cities, bought a house with a field, yeah. and someone said, Oh, you've got to have an Angus cow. Yes. So what do we do with the cow? 
uh, they let me how do you get it in the car for them what do we do uh, and, and actually I said I'll tell you what you do with the car you sell it and buy a steer if you want something to look at <laughs> and I put a whole lot of people out of the breed altogether oh, really? people who should never have been in yeah, sure, yeah, sure. and it was quite interesting and then some really good people started breeding cattle I, this last year last September I was asked to do the herd judging competition for the Southwest Club uh-huh. I had 27 herds to visit in four days wow. between Cornwall and Wiltshire. Yeah, it's a nice part of the world. Borrowed my old car from my son who lives down in Wales and put 1,150 miles on the clock. <laughs> but it was fascinating because yeah. I saw a lot of good cattle. Yeah, yes. Really good cattle down in the South Wales. They are. It's always, I mean, I've been, for years, we tried to get an Angus sale going in the South because everything couldn't come to Perth. No. I mean, everything coming to Perth meant a whole lot of people went home disappointed. Yes. So I tried for years. I took over the Leicester sale. Huh. And then there was a porter strike and it was cancelled one year. And so it never took off again. Mm-hmm. So we held a sale on the Peterborough showground for mm-hmm. about three years. Right. And I tried to get a bull sale going with Ben Coates and Keith Bromley in Salisbury. And I uh-huh. went down and talked to myself there for 30 years. Really? <laughs> and I never succeeded in getting a, a decent sale of Angus started in the yeah. South. Yeah. There's a hell of a lot of good cattle in the yeah, southwest, yeah, and a lot of them. Yeah. Yes. Never really wanted to get into trouble judging no. individual breeds. You just make enemies. Yes, I'm sure you will. But if you're judging interbreed, yes. then basically all you're looking for is the best beef animal. Yeah. yeah. And I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed that. Yes. I've judged every show in the country. Maybe, yes, I You don't want to get any bigger, I don't think. No. no. The danger. The danger is they start going for bone again, which uh-huh. they did at one time. Um, and you know, my grandfather said years ago what the people should be aiming to do is breed cattle with the maximum amount of flesh on the minimum amount of bone. Uh-huh. Yeah. And the Angus breed has nice flat, flesh-carrying bone. But there, there was a danger at one time that they were growing too much for bone and they were going to get this big round bone which mm-hmm. doesn't carry flesh yeah. and you can't yeah. eat bone. Yeah. Yeah, and there's too much daylight underneath them. And, so they, I think they've got them about right in my book. It's, it's interesting. That's been most interesting, certainly, talking to you when I was looking for... I have to say that I hope you enjoyed as much as I did because I thoroughly enjoyed my time there talking to Roly Fraser and I will ad- openly admit that uh, a lot of the knowledge that I have within the Aberdeen Angus uh, breed comes very much from that particular conversation. So uh, please remember that this recording was made nearly 10 years ago. So I hope you join me in paying respect to one of the greatest men within the UK industry and uh, our condolences do go to his family uh, since his sad loss. As always, we'd like to thank our sponsors, Harbro, suppliers and manufacturers of quality livestock nutrition. And please join us on the 16th of November when I will actually be hoping to bring you a live broadcast from Harbro's trade stand or in and around the AgriScot event in Edinburgh so if you can be there pop in and say hello It'd be great to speak to you um, and also of course speaking to the Harbour's representatives and everybody else that will be in and around that great event uh, and if you can't make it then hopefully tune in here within a week or two and uh, we'll have that live broadcast uh, available for you don't forget to tune into our Facebook page Top Lines and Tales there for notes, photographs and various other information regarding this and other previous episodes thanks <laughs>